the fourth watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be an exciting journey as we hash through the layers of the ancient warfare between God and Satan with mind-blowing historic details. We'll be covering a wide range of fascinating topics, including mysteries of the Red Sea standoff between God and Baal, occult conspiracy, and even the coming death of the gods. There's much to learn in these areas of supernatural study, and tonight, we join the conversation. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the 4th Watch Radio Network, I call this episode, Satan PsyOps, from Eden to Armageddon, with special guest, Derek Gilbert. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the fourth watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H. R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. Also, a quick reminder, I'm only broadcasting the Fourth Watch Thursday show every other week while I'm working on the upcoming film, but be sure to tune into Omega Frequency with BDK airing Mondays on the Fourth Watch. Now tonight we dive back into another heavy discussion and uncover some fascinating elements of the ancient spiritual war, or as we like to call it, the Cosmic War. Derek Gilbert is going to be joining us from an undisclosed location to break out some key components from his upcoming book, The Great Inception. Derek has done a fascinating work in his research and once again will be connecting certain elements of supernatural history with the biblical narrative to grasp a deeper knowledge of the Word of God. So with that said, let's go ahead and welcome on my friend and fellow watchman, Derek Gilbert. Derek, welcome to the Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? I'm doing great. Thank you, Justin. It's uh, it's an honor to be here. I tell you, Derek, the honor is all mine. It's a pleasure. You know, when, when my brother Wes and Chad and I were up in uh, in Missouri, we got to spend time with you guys. It was such a blessing uh, just to see how you all operate at Skywatch TV. It's like it's a big family. You operate with a spirit of love. And uh, to be able to have some of the conversations we had, uh, just, just mind-blowing. Uh, I've told some people kind of off the record, we have a segment we shot with you that's going to be in the upcoming Hollow Earth film. And you really, you really blew my mind about this idea of some of these pagan temples and the locations of the temples. And then you, you explained that, that this is kind of like some of the research that you started to do as you were working on getting your book finished. Now, tonight we're talking about the great inception and the tagline here is Satan psyops from Eden to Armageddon. Now that in and of itself is going to raise some eyebrows. 
Tell us a little bit about what got you into this research. Well, it started with the weekly Bible study that Sharon and I produce and, and post online at uh, gilberthouse.org. We were getting into the uh, the story of the Exodus. And uh, it's a story that we've all heard. You know, anyone who's been in church since childhood, you know, Sunday school, it, you, you're familiar with the story of how the, the Israelites were enslaved. You know, every year at Easter, we see the Ten Commandments on, on the big screen with Charlton Heston. Uh, so you you think you know the story. And as we were reading Exodus, I, I noticed something that, that caught my attention that uh, I had not noticed before. And that was uh, Exodus 14, where God says to Moses, essentially, uh, turn around. And, you know, this, this is after the, the ten plagues and Pharaoh and the, and the people have said, okay, fine, leave, get out of here. Here, we'll give you all our gold, go. Um, but Exodus 14, beginning at verse 1, says, tell the people of Israel to turn back. They're running away from the uh, probably the most powerful or one of the most powerful military forces in the ancient Near East in that uh, that period, you know, 15th century B.C. And God tells Moses to tell the people of Israel, turn around. And then in a camp, a camp at a place uh, opposite Baal Zephon or in front of Baal Zephon. Now, I know enough history to know that Baal is a Canaanite deity. All right. It was a West. He was the West Semitic storm god, uh, originally named Hadad or Adad or Adu, depending on which period of history and where in the you know ancient Near East you're, you're located. But he was not an Egyptian god. So why was Baal in Egypt? So then I started dig, doing some digging to figure out what was going on there and found it. And I knew this. It's just that there's like this wall of separation in my head between the history that I've read, because I'm a kind of a history nerd, and what I've read in the Bible about this period of history. And during this time, or just before the Exodus, there was a period of a couple hundred years, scholars aren't really sure, maybe 100, maybe 200 years, where northern Egypt, or lower Egypt, as the scholars call it, was under the control of Semitic people called the Hyksos. This is what the Egyptians called them later. It basically means rulers of foreign lands. And they were... It apparently emigrated to Egypt, uh, just like the Israelites did, and wound up in control of the political situation in northern Egypt. There were still uh, Egyptian rulers in in southern or upper Egypt at the t- around the town of Thebes, but uh, the uh, northern Egypt was under the control of these Semitic people called the Hyksos, and they worshipped Baal. They brought their Canaanite gods with them, which isn't really a surprise. Uh, scholars have known this for years. The the, the uh, architecture of their buildings is the same as what's found in Syria and the Levant, what uh, you know, ancient Canaan. Um, there are burial practices that are the same as what uh, is found in Canaan during the second millennium BC. Basically, the people that we would call the Canaanites emigrated to Egypt and took over, and they worshipped Baal. And there was a place called Baal Zephon on the shore of the Red Sea. Well, what is Baal Zephon? Zaphon is the name of a mountain in northern, well, actually, it's on the border between Syria and Turkey, right on the Mediterranean coast. And the significance of this mountain is that it was the home of Baal's palace. I mean, everyone in the ancient Near East knew that was where Baal's palace was located. This is the border of Turkey? That's where Mount Zaphon is located. But there was a place on the border, uh, on the shore of the Red Sea called Baal Zaphon, apparently sacred to Baal, whose holy mountain 
was on the border between Turkey and Syria. Right. When I hear Turkey, like the first thing that comes to mind is the seat of Satan. Well, that's a really good catch, and you're among the few who would get that. And there's a lot of significance that we can talk about here in, in a few minutes because um, Mount Zaphon was so significant in the minds of the ancient Hebrews that Zaphon actually became the Hebrew word for the compass point north. Because Mount Zaphon, of course, being on the border between Turkey and Syria, is located north of ancient Israel. They knew that's where Baal's holy mountain was, Mount Zaphon. So when you referred to north, you just said, oh, Zaphon. That brings a number of verses in the Old Testament into a whole new light. And we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. But, but the bottom line is what, what was going on here was that the crossing of the Red Sea was not just a real showy way for Yahweh to you know, bring the people, his chosen people, out of Egypt. This, this was a supernatural battle. This was a specific event that was intended as a message to Israel, intended as a message to the people of of Canaan and the ancient Near East, because Baal was among the Semitic people of the ancient Near East, was the king of the gods. I mean, he's the one who defeated the uh, the chaos monster, the chaos god of the sea, uh, called Yam. And Yam's uh, sidekick or or colleague, if you will, called Lotan. Well, Lotan was just the the Canaanite version of the name Leviathan. So in their cosmology, Baal or the storm god, Hadad, was the one who defeated the sea and brought it under control. So Baal was the, uh, was the patron god of sailors. I mean, long into the Phoenician period of history, when the Phoenicians, who were the, the sailors par excellence, you know, they were the best-known seafaring people in the ancient world, uh, who probably crossed the ocean and made it to the Americas, although we don't have definite proof of that. Uh, but their sailors worshipped Baal because he was the one who mastered the sea. He was their patron god, the one who kept them safe and protected them. So the crossing of the Red Sea and the way God parted the sea and then brought it back down on the heads of the uh, the army that followed them, the Egyptian army, was a specific event intended to send a message in the natural realm and in the supernatural realm. And first of all, it was a message to the Israelites and to all of the people in the, in the region, Yahweh is the true master, not only of the sea, but of Baal as well. Yahweh is supreme. But it was a message in the supernatural realm to Baal and to the other fallen entities, the B'nai Elohim, the sons of God, that uh, Yahweh placed over the nations after the Tower of Babel incident. The 70 sons of El, or sons of God, uh, your days are numbered. Your days of judging unjustly, of claiming worship for yourself in my place are numbered, and my people are coming to the land that I have chosen, and we are coming for you. Uh, this had to happen the way it did, because it was a specific message aimed at the chief god of the people who occupied the land, Canaan, that God had chosen for his people. Now, Derek, let me ask a question. I want to make sure, I, I just want to make sure that I'm, I'm grasping this properly, and, and for the sake of everyone listening, with the ancient belief system that Baal was the, the god that, that was able to control the sea or to calm the sea, he was worshipped by the seafaring people, God, Yahweh, the, the living God, steps in and he says, I'm going to part the sea. I'm going to do something that no one has ever done ever. I'm going to split these waters and I'm going to give dry land right here. 
basically as a slap in the face to Baal. Exactly right. Wow. Exactly right. He didn't, God didn't need to do what he did at the Red Sea. I mean, the Israelites were already escaping. God had shown that he could throw, you know, hailstones from heaven, you know, flaming hailstones. He could, he could have sent another plague to debilitate the Egyptian army. But instead, he told Moses, turn back and camp in front of this place called Baal Zephon. And it said, it said, you shall encamp facing it. So not just turn back. Go here in front of this place sacred to Baal, the chief god of the people who have been oppressing you, and camp facing it all night long. And then in the morning, after the angel of Yahweh, which is a Christophany, that's Jesus, the second power in heaven, after the angel of Yahweh keeps the Egyptian army at bay all night long, keeps them from coming in, swooping in, and destroying the Israelites where they camped, uh, God then parts the waters showing his mastery over what was supposed to be Baal's turf. And then when the Baal worshipers followed, then (laughs) they died. Their God was not able to do what Yahweh had done. And this was so significant that 40 years later, you remember Jezebel, not Jezebel, Rahab in uh, Jericho, saying, we've heard what Yahweh did for you, and everyone here is terrified because your God is more powerful than the gods that we've been following. Hmm. And there are multiple examples of this in the Bible if you read it with those eyes, with the mindset that there are other gods, small g gods, created beings, created by Yahweh, who rebelled against his authority. Those are the gods that God takes issue with in Psalm 82, which reads in the ESV, God has taken his place in the divine council. That's the term for it, the divine council, sort of Yahweh's supernatural task force to carry out his directives, in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So, see, the Bible calls these entities gods, and we we get some pushback on this um, because we've been conditioned, us English speakers, to attach a certain meaning to the word G-O-D. And we're we're told in the Bible, it says, you know, God is one. Well, yeah, he is, but what that means is God is preeminent. He is supreme. He is unequaled. But the Bible says that there are other gods. And in fact, in Psalm 82, God calls these gods gods. So I'm on pretty safe ground here. I used to get a lot of blowback when I would talk about the gods being actual entities. And people would say, that's just new age, that's mysticism. And I say, look, if a god with a little g is simply a carved idol, you know, be it wood or stone, whatever, Why would God have told the children of Israel, I believe it's in Exodus, and I don't have the address right in front of me, but he says, when you go through this land, do not enter into covenant with their gods. How do you enter into covenant with a piece of stone? Exactly, exactly. Again, in Psalm 82, God refers to them specifically as gods. And we often hear this from Bible teachers as a reference to human judges. You know, God was condemning the judges of the Israelites for not ruling justly. But when you read Psalm 82 in its entirety, that that explanation doesn't make any sense. Um, Beginning at verse 6, God speaking here, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Now, if he's speaking to a human audience, like, like men, you shall die? Well, duh. No, he's speaking to supernatural entities. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. 
Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is a key thing when you think about it. And this is you know, mind boggling. There is a day coming when these gods will die. The death of the gods has been ordained by God most high. And that day is coming. And verse 8 speaks of that day. Psalm 82, verse 8. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Right now, when God, according to Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, when he divided the nations and gave the nations their inheritance, he numbered the nations according to the number of the sons of God. That's the, the, the translation from the Septuagint and from the Dead Sea Scrolls. The ESV translates it this way. A couple of other English translations render it that way. Most English translations say, according to the number of the sons of Israel, which makes no sense because it's referring to the tower of the immediate aftermath of the Tower of Babel. And Israel, uh, Jacob, was still about twelve or 1,500 years in the future. But there is a tradition in the Canaanite cosmology, the Semitic cosmology, uh, that uh, the chief god El who um, was semi-retired, I guess that's the best way to describe him. Baal was the king of the gods, but El was the creator god in their pantheon, lived on his holy mountain with the B'nai Elohim, the sons of El. And guess how many sons of El lived with him on his holy mountain? Seventy. How many nations are in Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, the number of nations divided by God after Babel? Seventy. Now, Luke chapter 10, how many disciples did Jesus send out from the foot of Mount Hermon into Galilee ahead of him? Seventy. How many elders of Israel did God call up to Mount Sinai, along with Moses and Aaron, to have a meal in his presence? Seventy. It's not a coincidence. This is not an accident. This is not retroactive editing of the Bible. Apparently, there were 70 sons of God, sons of the Most High, that were placed over the nations as rulers in God's stead. They were to be subordinate to him and report back to him, but they rebelled. Psalm 82 illustrates what happened when God called them to account. There is a day coming when those 70 will die. And um, that is when God will judge the nations. That's the uh, day of the Lord that is uh, prophesied and forthcoming. Now, just a question on that, and I don't want to go into a deep tangent here. I know we've got so much to talk about. Do you believe the day that the gods will die? Do you believe that that is the same timing as what we read about as the second death for all the unrighteous? Yes. So you believe that's going to be kind of like a, a final cleansing? Yeah. That's, that's you now again, there's, are, there are scholars who've dug more deeply into it than I have, but that is my understanding. There's this, there's a scholar out there who Dr. Michael Heiser has interviewed a couple of times on his Naked Bible podcast named David Barnett, and I would love to get him on my podcast to talk with him more about this because he's written an academic paper on this particular topic, uh, which is touched on in the New Testament, First Chronicles 15. Um, so I, I'm barely getting my mind around this, but I think just what you can take away from Psalm 82, uh, where God is telling them in verses 6 and 7, uh, like men you shall die and fall like any prince, and you can... I think pretty safely put that together with the second death where um, Satan and his minions are thrown into the lake of fire along with hell and death. Uh, I think that is a pretty good guess that that's when that's going to happen. Now, I've been doing a whole lot of discussion. Well, I say a whole lot. I've, I've had a lot of good discussion with uh, with my friend Gary Wayne, and we've been kind of going back and forth between the, the Gilgamesh and Nimrod. And, and, you know, Gary has has made a very strong case that, 
Nimrod is not Gilgamesh based on a historical timeline, but that they were two separate entities. I, I would agree. The interesting thing that kind of has come up is the idea of Inky or Anki, however somebody would care to say it. Right. Um, you know, Gary and I both agree that Inky is literally a manifestation of Satan himself being the serpent god. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we get into the gods, we, we always have this kind of common denominator, Derek, where there's kind of a, a leader god, kind of like the head of the pantheon or the, the quote unquote creator god in their pantheon. When we talk about Baal, is it your belief that the 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 entity behind Baal is Lucifer, or do you think that maybe it's a, another fallen? Well, I'll be honest with you. It's, it's hard to say um, because we can't assume that uh, they've been telling us the truth. And so what we get out of the cosmology of the ancient Mesopotamians, the Sumerians, the Akkadians, uh, the Amorites, who I think in, play a, a much bigger role in history than uh, they've been given credit for, uh, I don't know that we can always take what they were given by these entities as uh, as absolute fact. Um, I, I agree Enki is more significant than most of us realize. I would argue that Nimrod, and in fact, in the book, I spent a lot of time on this, that uh, Nimrod is actually the Sumerian king Enmerkar. Yes. And this is on the research of uh, Egyptologist David Roll. Uh, Peter Goodgame, in his book, The Second Coming of the Antichrist, develops this uh, theory. And I agree, because the evidence uh, suggests that Enmerkar, the Sumerian king, who was the second generation after the flood, like Nimrod, had set for himself the goal of, of rebuilding a couple of, of temple complexes in uh, Sumer. He was the king of Uruk, and Uruk uh, in the Bible spelled Erech, uh, is still the name that we apply to his native land 5,000 years later. We just say Iraq. That's how important Nimrod and his kingdom was, you know, circa 3000 BC, maybe even 3500 BC, somewhere in that time frame. Uh, Uruk dominated the ancient Near East. There was a period of history called uh, the Uruk expansion. Scholars still trying to figure out how did this city state in Sumer, uh, and, and, you know, bear in mind, Sumer has like no natural resources whatsoever. All right. It's what's called an alluvial plain, mud, sand. Uh, no trees, no stone to speak of. You build with bricks because there's nothing else. If you want to build with wood, you have to import it from somewhere, which means you got to pay for it or you got to take it. Well, apparently the armies of Uruk were on the march back in the days in Nimrod, and I go into a little bit of that in the book, and evidence, archaeological evidence that, uh, that's been found. The two temples that uh, this Nimrod slash Enmerkar, and Enmerkar is just a compound word. En in Sumerian means lord, and kar is a suffix that uh, translated means Hunter. Of course, Nimrod is referred to in Genesis a mighty hunter before the Lord. So you've got that bit of evidence. But there's also a, a poem that uh, still exists today, translated from Sumerian, called Enmerkar and the Lord of Arata. Now, scholars don't agree as to where this land, Arata, was located. It might be in Iran. It might be in modern, you know, what today is Armenia, you know, where the mountains of Ararat are located. And there was an ancient kingdom called Urartu which is a cognate, uh, means basically it's just another way of writing Ararat, um, where Noah, you know, landed the boat. Um, that's north of Syria. It's uh, east of Turkey, between Turkey and uh, Azerbaijan. Um, but again, we really don't know. The whole point, though, was that Enmerkar, Nimrod, was trying to put the screws to this kingdom um, to get building materials, to build up two temple complexes. One was to the goddess Inanna. Uh, Inanna, we know better today as Venus. 
Inanna, Ishtar, Aphrodite, Atargetus. She's gone by many names in many cultures, but she was the goddess of war and the goddess of sex. And by that we mean extramarital, carnal, um, gender fluid sex. Okay? All of this stuff that we're seeing in the news today in our modern Western society about gender fluidity is not progressive. It is regressive. It is taking us back to a thousand years before Abraham. Okay? Inanna was the first gender fluid uh, uh, entity on, on the planet, at least as far as we can tell. Um, that was one of the things that Nimrod wanted to do, Enmerkar, you know, build up this, this glorious temple to Inanna in his home city of Uruk. The other thing he wanted to do was to build up and expand a ziggurat that archaeologists have found uh, in a city called Eridu. It is the oldest and the largest ziggurat in Mesopotamia. Larger than the uh, the the, uh, the ziggurat for the uh, the sun god in the city of Ur, um, larger than the uh, Etemenanki, which is the the house of heaven and earth uh, in Babylon, the the temple of Marduk, older, dating all the way back to about 5400 BC. You know there are 18 levels of this this temple complex that have been discovered by archaeologists. The the oldest one is like a little 10 by 10 room, okay. Uh, so we're, we're going back into long before the invention of writing. Writing wasn't uh, invented until about 3000 BC. So, you know, as long before the invention of writing as the time between Jesus Christ and you and me having this conversation, there was a temple at a city called Eridu, which the Mesopotamians said was the very first city. When kingship was first lowered from heaven, it was lowered at Eridu. And this is the temple to the god Enki. Now, Enki is a compound word, En meaning Lord, Ki meaning Earth, Lord of the Earth, God of this world. Okay, so you make a good case, and I agree with Gary Wayne on this that there's a good case for equating Enki with Satan. The 18th level, the biggest level of this temple, and this temple complex was in existence and in use for almost 5,000 years. It wasn't finally abandoned until after the the Neo Babylonian kingdom of uh, Belshazzar and Nabonidus was overrun by uh, the Persians, the Medo-Persians in, in the 5th century BC. So for 5,000 years, this temple complex was, was being used. But the largest level was never completed. Around the year 3000 BC, archaeologists who worked on this site back in 1949 uh, found that all of a sudden the temple complex to Enki was just abandoned. And the, the, and the city was abandoned. But we see in Genesis chapter 10, that's exactly what happened. When God came down at Babel and confused the languages of the workers, they left off building the city. You see, this temple, in my view, is the actual Tower of Babel, not the Temple of Marduk at Babylon. I mean, Babylon didn't even exist until about 1900 B.C. So we're talking, you know, about 1200 years earlier. This temple of Enki, this uh, uh, this ziggurat at the city of Eridu, was the actual location of the Tower of Babel. Now, why would God feel compelled to go down and stop the construction on this particular project? Was it because humans were getting too prideful? They thought they could build a tower all the way up to heaven? No, that's silly. To be honest with you, that's silly. This poem, Enmerkar in the Lord of Arata, uh, records the reason that Enmerkar slash Nimrod wanted to build this temple. 
It's because he wanted to make it a holy mountain, the abode of the gods. The abode of the gods is a phrase used repeatedly in Mesopotamian literature, Akkadian, Sumerian, to designate holy mountains where the gods lived. Now, this kind of gets back into the idea of mountains having, certain mountains at least, having uh, portals or stargates at the, at the tip. Places where the gods lived, correct. We know from the Epic of Gilgamesh, um, the oldest version that we have today, which dates to the old Babylonian period, to about 1800 BC, that Mount Hermon was known as the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. The Anunnaki were the gods of the Sumerians. So this Epic of Gilgamesh probably preserves an older tradition about Mount Hermon. Now, Mount Hermon is not exactly close to ancient Sumer, especially when you have to walk or, or ride a donkey. Uh, we're talking a distance of probably 600 miles or more. But Mount Hermon, even in that ancient time, you know, the second or third millennium BC was known as the place where the Anunnaki lived. And Gilgamesh had to go there in order to kill the guardian of the, the cedar forest on this holy mountain. Um, so the the abode of the gods uh, apparently was was something that uh, Nimrod slash Enmerkart was trying to do. He was trying to build an artificial holy mountain to serve as the abode of the gods. And he was doing it over the temple, you know, at the temple, devoted to the god Enki. The key thing about Enki um, is that his temple was called the E-Abzu, or House of the Abzu, House of the Fresh Waters. There was a uh, an aquifer, it was believed, beneath the temple that was the source of fresh water that was necessary for life, especially, you know, in Sumer, which is today, it's uh, southeast Iraq, which is mainly sand. So the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers are kind of essential to life. If you see any representation of the god Enki, it's, uh, sh it shows him with two streams of water, one flowing from each sh shoulder. One represents the Tigris, the other represents the Euphrates. So, but the, the, the key point is that the, the word Abzu, the Sumerian word Abzu is the root of the word that we in English uh, uh, use as, as abyss. Okay, now I, you're making all these thoughts come into my head right now. I, I'm really having to bite my tongue right now because I don't want to stop you from saying what you're saying. You're, you're saying so much solid meat. I, I just I, I feel like I want to interject a couple questions. And the, the principalities, we know uh, the Apostle Paul talks about really the forces behind the wickedness that we see on the earth. It's the principalities. And I tend to kind of link up the principalities with those sons of God, those watcher angels. Right. Uh, you mentioned the 70 that were over the nations. Um, what's really interesting, Derek, is when you go back to shortly there after 9-11, mm -hmm. you know, we, we invaded Iraq as a nation. And it wasn't just America. We had other help going over there. Um, I remember hearing people and, and, you know, whether people were in agreement with the war or not, that doesn't matter. I remember hearing people in the quote unquote prophecy area of research, and they were saying that by us going over and setting up shop there, that we were now in league. Some of our highest leaders of government were in league with principalities that they should not be in league with. Now, I'm not saying that's the case. I'm just I, I found it very interesting now, back then in that time period, Derek, I didn't know half of the information that I know today. And so these things that you're saying right now, I, I can't help but to think of, of principalities over the area. And America goes over there. They set up shop. Um, do you think there was any prophetic significance to that? It's hard, it's hard to say for certain. I, I don't know. Uh, but it is curious. And, and I 
speculate on this in the book, The Great Inception, just a little bit, that moving you know forward 15 years from uh, 9-11 and uh, you know, our invasion of Iraq in, in March of 2003 to today, um, the, the group of people I'd mentioned earlier, the Amorites, who most of us, if we've heard of them at all, remember that they're one of the seven nations that had to be pushed out of Canaan when Joshua led the Israelites across the Jordan River. But the Amorites had uh, a, a period in history from about 2000 B.C. until about 1600 B.C., roughly the time of Abraham through about the time of the uh, sojourn in Egypt just before the Exodus, where the Amorites were in control of every kingdom in the ancient Near East from Egypt I, I believe the Amorites were actually the Hyksos, uh, all the way to Babylon. Um, in fact, th- this is something else we need to correct in our thinking. We, we hear about Babylon and Babylonian uh, as though it is an ethnicity. Uh, there is no such ethnicity as Babylonian. Um, the Babylonian kingdom was founded by Amorites in the year roughly 1794 B.C. I'm using the, the standard dates that the scholars, archaeologists have come up with. There, there are those that will argue that date. But say roughly 1800 B.C. is when the kingdom of Babylon was first founded. The city of Babylon before that was like an, a nothing, unimportant little village on the, on the river. Uh, was founded about 2300 B.C. But saying that somebody was a Babylonian or that, uh, you know, Babylonians uh, were responsible for this. It's like saying that, you know, I am Chicagoan because I was born there. Ignoring the fact that I'm German, Swedish, English, Welsh, and, you know, a few other things. Um, the, the, the Babylonians were Amorites. The Amorites were responsible for Babylon and the occult system that uh, is going to represent the uh, one world church in, in the book of Revelation. Well, it's the occult system, really. You know, that's that's always been my perspective on Babylon. Uh, when I when I think of Babylonian anything, I think of a satanic New World Order system, right? An occult system. I, I, it's, it's interesting that you say that. When when God made His covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15, He said, "Your descendants will return from Egypt in the fourth generation because the iniquity, the sin of the Amorites, is not yet complete." So what's the deal with the Amorites? Well, they founded Babylon. Moses ties specifically the occult system of Babylon to King Og of Bashan, the last of the Rephaim. The homeland, now scholars have known this, you know, secular scholars have known this for probably 100 years. The homeland of the Amorites, the homeland of the Amorites, their point of origin before they moved into Sumer and took over and then set up the kingdom of Babylon was the area of Syria that is today dominated by the Islamic State, the area along the Euphrates River from about Deir ez-Zor, where they're fighting a fierce battle with Syrian army, which they've got surrounded at this city, all the way up to Raqqa, which is the capital of the Islamic State. There were ancient cities along there, and that, according to scholars, is where the Amorites originated. That's where they came from. So isn't it curious, Now, and this gets back to your point, what did we do when we went into Babylon and basically it took over Iraq in 2003? Did we ally ourselves with some territorial spirits that occupied that place? Maybe. Why is it that the uh, Islamic State's core territory corresponds to the core territory of the Amorites 4,000 years ago, who God said were so wicked that he tied the return of the Israelites from Egypt to the sin of the Amorites. King Manasseh 
of Judah, who burned his child to the god Moloch, was depicted, was described in, uh, in the Old Testament as being even more wicked than the Amorites. And, you know, this, this was like a thousand years after the Amorites even ceased to be on the world stage. They were no longer called the Amorites. But yet their wickedness was legendary. What was the deal with the Amorites? And like I said, isn't it curious that their home turf is exactly where the Islamic State is located today? Now, you mentioned Islamic State, and uh, obviously there's a lot of points we can't hit because of time. But one of the things that you, you kind of highlight in your book, and I don't know how, how deep you go, but you talk about how the moon god of ancient Babylon is still influencing world events today. Now, when you say the moon god, it's my first instinct to assume that you're speaking of the Islamic god Allah. I, I don't know that you can, you can make that, that firm case, at least not with the evidence that's available to us. But the, let, me, let me just spill out what, what I've found, and uh, this is something that's going to require more research. Scholars say that the, um, the evidence suggests that the two gods that were primarily worshipped by the Amorites before they moved into Mesopotamia and took over, uh, set up the old Assyrian kingdom, set up the old Babylonian kingdom, and a number of other smaller uh, political entities. There was a kingdom based around the city of Aleppo called Yamkad. Uh, which was very powerful back around the time of Abraham. Uh, the two gods that were mainly worshipped by the Amorites was uh, the god El. And again, El was just sort of a generic term meaning the god, which is, and you know, it's not a coincidence that Yahweh identified himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as El Shaddai. It wasn't until the time of Moses that he said, you know, my name is Yahweh, yad heh vav heh I am who I am. Prior to that, it was El Shaddai. Um, the other god worshipped by the Amorites was the moon god. And I'm just beginning to realize, as I do a lot of reading in ancient cosmology, that um, it is not the sun god that was preeminent or the storm god that was preeminent in um, ancient Sumer and, and the Mesopotamian pantheon. It was the moon god. Just stumbled onto a paper the other day that shows how the moon god actually called the other gods into a sort of divine council, including Marduk, who was supposed to be the chief god of, of Babylon. Um, the moon god called Sin, called Nana by the uh, Sumerians, but also called Yarik by the Amorites before they moved into Mesopotamia. Um, so you've got these two gods, El and Yarik. Uh, who were the the two main entities worshipped by the uh, the Amorites or around the time of Abraham? Uh, not coincidentally, um, when the uh, Israelites, led by Moses and then by Joshua, crossed the Jordan River, their first target was Jericho. Now, if you've looked at Hebrew for any length of time, you know that uh, we tend to swap J's and Y's back and forth. Uh, uh, Jesus was Yeshua. Yarik in the ancient Amorite, which is related to Hebrew, was actually the name of the city that was the first one attacked by the Israelites, Jericho. There was actually an Amorite tribe called the Yariku, named for this moon god. Now, interestingly, when you read the account of the attack on Jericho, you find that the, uh, the attack began after the Israelites crossed the river celebrated the Passover. Now, the Passover always takes place on the 15th of uh, Nisan, which is the 15th day of the first month, 
of the new year. The Babylonians, the Amorites, uh, again, and remember now that the uh, the conquest of Canaan came about 400 years after Babylon was founded and established its its occult system. They always celebrated a uh, New Year's festival called the uh, the Akitu festival, which was like a 12-day festival that uh, glorified the god Marduk and his defeat over the sea. <laughs> Tiamat, which was the Sumerian name for Lotan, Leviathan. And um, culminated with a, uh, a visit by Marduk and his consort, Zarpanit, to the occult bed in the Etamenanki, the temple of Marduk in Babylon, for ritual lovemaking, to bless Babylon for the coming year. Um, so the, the first day of the new year always falls on the new moon. The, the lunar calendar is always based on, you know, the first day is always the new moon which is, you know, when the moon is basically invisible in the sky. Um, Fifteen days into the month, you get the full moon, all right? And Passover falls 15 days into that first month of the, of the new year. So the Israelites cross the Jordan River, Jericho, the city of the moon god, probably because it was founded by Amorites, celebrating its new year festival for 12 days, the Israelites, uh, if you read the, the account in uh, the book of Joshua, you see that uh, all of the men of fighting age had to be circumcised because they weren't circumcising when they were out in the, uh, the uh, desert. Uh, so while this is going on, the men of Israel are kind of healing up. Um, then the 15th day comes, the full moon, and they celebrate the Passover. And then they begin marching around Jericho. The attack on the city of the moon god, which was the preeminent god of the, the Amorites, apparently, uh, began on the first full moon of the new year. Now, I don't think that's a coincidence. It rarely is. <laughs> and even beyond that, when you get past the next uh, battle where uh, the uh, the Israelites defeat the city of Ai, it took two tries because they had a little issue with somebody taking uh, items that had been dedicated to destruction from uh, the, the ruins of, of Jericho. Um, but after they defeated the city of Ai and then the city of uh, Gibeon surrendered, basically, fooled Joshua into making a treaty with them. The Amorite kings of Jerusalem and in southern Canaan basically put together a a, a, a confederate army. Um, and I don't mean confederate like the Confederate States of America, but uh, a coalition was the word I was looking for. They put together a coalition army and attacked the Israelites. And the Israelites uh, in the valley of um, uh, Ajalon have such a a, 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 an incredible victory. That's when Joshua prays to the God, prays to uh, Yahweh, you know, make the sun stand still so that we can make this a complete victory because the sun is going down. We won't be able to see to finish off this, uh, this Amorite army. And God makes the sun stand still in the sky, basically keeps the moon out of the sky for the moon God worshipers for a whole day. Again, it's not a coincidence. And these are events that are recorded in the Bible because they have meaning. God didn't inspire the prophets and the apostles to write filler because they needed to fill a few more verses. This is an important event that would have been understood by people reading this in the 15th century BC or, you know, some for years thereafter. It's only us 2000 years down the road, looking back at this, that we start, you know, for example, we, we, we start reading the supernatural aspect, the element out of the scripture 
And then we take it a step further. We read ourselves into the scriptures like, hey, if we pray that way, God will make our, you know, sun stand still or he'll make our Jericho walls, whatever the obstacle is that we face. He'll do that for us, too. Well, no, not necessarily. Uh, The point is that there were other gods here that were being worshipped by these people, real gods, real entities who had rebelled against the most high God. And God was sending them a message. You have no power here. These are my people. You're on my land. And you have to go. It just it goes to show how this all lines up with with this message that that we always preach on the fourth watch. Understanding the history, understanding what the pagan nations were doing, the gods that they worshipped, understanding all of that history, all of that architecture, all of that on the timeline. It makes it makes the pages of our Bible pop so much more brilliantly. Absolutely. And that's the whole point of the great inception. Just these these gods are real. They have been scheming and plotting against their creator since the garden. Um, these battles seem to focus around mountains, and I, I specify eight separate mountains in the Bible, starting with Eden, which Ezekiel 28 uh, says is a mountain, and culminates on the final mountain, which is where Armageddon will be fought, and that's Mount Zion, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Uh, the other mountains, of course, the artificial mountain Babel we've already talked about, Mount Zaphon, the holy mountain of Baal, Mount Hermon, where the watchers came down, and hatched their plan to corrupt humanity by taking women and creating the Nephilim, but also teaching mankind knowledge we weren't supposed to have. Um, But interestingly, Mount Hermon, according to a uh, scholar named Edward Lipinski, wrote a paper about 40 years ago, pointed out that that Mount Hermon was considered the the holy mountain, the the mount of the, the secret dwelling of the Anunnaki. It was the holy mountain of the chief Canaanite god, El, which is why Jesus had the, the transfiguration on Mount Hermon. It's where the confession of faith by Peter, you know, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, took place at the foot of Mount Hermon, right in front of the grotto of Pan, which was known to the rest of the ancient Near East as the literal location of the gates to the netherworld, the gates of hell, which will not prevail against the rock on which Jesus said he would build his church. That's right. You know, it's interesting, Garrick. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned uh, Mount Hermon, and some of my research has led me to some information that a lot of the pagan cultures would take animals and different various types of living sacrifices and throw it into an opening at the base of the mountain as a sacrifice to the gods. Yeah, and in, there is uh, some evidence, according to secular scholars, that there were some human sacrifices performed that way as well. Now, a couple quick things. I know I know we're running out of time here. Um, talk about the Anunnaki for one second. I, I want to bring this little, this, this thought up. We know according to scripture that there are certain angels that were involved in the, the cohabitation, the, the creation of the Nephilim. We know that, that there are some fallen angels that are bound currently. I mean, the Bible talks about some of them are bound. Mm-hmm. Now, the Anunnaki are still in existence. Uh, we have many accounts, uh, you know, and, and I don't want to go deep into this, but even the uh, the accounts with Eisenhower and, and him going black, basically, for, for so much time. He says he went to get some dental work done. And then we find out later that he was meeting with a group of Anunnaki and they were coming up with basically well, they, they called them aliens, of course, uh, but they were coming up with some type of a, an agreement. Then we, we talked to some of these other Christian researchers who, who are retired FBI, retired CIA, retired Pentagon, and they say that the Anunnaki is a household name 
at the highest levels of government. Mm-hmm. How, how do we process this? Um, who is bound? Who is not bound? Um, the Anunnaki, are, are we expecting to see this this surfacing publicly? I feel like we're being primed with all the movies and the TV shows. How does a Christian process this information concerning the Anunnaki? Well, I can only speculate on, on this. This is not a focus of the book, but it does kind of relate to the subtitle of the book, Satan's PSYOPs from Eden Armageddon. The PSYOP is a psychological operation where false or partly false information is fed to a person or a group of people in order to change their actions by changing what they believe. And this is what the enemy has been about since the garden, where the Nakash said to Adam and Eve, ye shall be as gods, eat this fruit and you'll be like the most high. Um, we've been told, humanity that is, since the garden, that if we do certain things or worship certain gods or perform certain rituals, that we will receive certain benefits, usually being as gods, uh, it, it, godlike power, um, certain technologies that uh, we need, things like that. Um, n- now in the New Age movement, it's uh, do do this and and you will be transformed. You'll be uh, you'll you'll evolve to the next level of, of human uh, humanity, humanity 2.0. Um, so w- whatever these messages are, whether it's um, a face to face meeting with government uh, uh, you know officials or uh, through New Age channelers who claim that they're hearing from from ancient deities that uh, you know come from the garden, or uh, certain European royal bloodlines who believe that they descend literally from the Anunnaki. Um, it's all part of this psychological operation. The overarching plan is to get us to believe anything except the one thing that's true, which is that there is only one path to God the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, who is the way truth and the life. So all of this is just a deception to try to throw sand in our eyes, to confuse us, to, uh, you know, dazzle us with shiny objects, uh, whatever, whether they present themselves as extraterrestrials or uh, ancient gods or our space brothers, it's all part of an overarching strategy. I mean, the tactics change from generation to generation, but the strategy is to get us to believe anything, any other path to enlightenment or apotheosis I would argue the transhumanist movement is part of this now uh, to get to believe that there's some other path to eternal life and apotheosis, godlike power, um, just so that we will not accept the one thing that is true, which is the uh, the path to heaven going through faith in Jesus Christ. That's right. And the thing that gets me is the deception has to be absolutely without any doubt. The deception has to be supernatural or paranormal in nature. It has to be a spiritual deception. And they try to play it back to where the Bible is just this old book written by man. And, and by pushing this this false narrative of the Bible, people have chipped away and they've rationalized and basically said, well, the Bible, it's just a, it's just a book. It's not supernatural. We have to rationalize everything that's on the pages of, of the Bible so that it's, it's a religious book rather than a supernatural document that was breathed by God for mankind. And so they have to come in with a supernatural, a paranormal, a spiritual deception of the last days because people, it's like we're hardwired. We need spiritual connection and we have this void in our life that can only be filled by God through Jesus Christ. And to fill this void, they try to fill this void with other means of spirituality, spiritism, aliens. They're seeking some type of supernatural spiritual understanding and they're buying into the massive deception, the great delusion that's going to be coming upon the world. Absolutely. That's what makes uh, books like The Great Inception so important. Uh, the books like The Unseen Realm, 
And I mean, we've got these, there's some great books that Christians need to read. I mean, obviously the Bible, when we understand the Bible for what it really is, and we understand that it's not some Sunday school book um, that's been kind of chiseled down for a child's understanding, we're dealing with a book that has everything that we need to know. Right. And then we start learning what the other cultures believed, like we touched on earlier. It makes everything make more sense. And we understand better what the times that we're approaching are going to look like. And better yet, how to be prepared, how to stand firm in Jesus Christ, how to have the Holy Spirit literally guiding every move of your life. So I'm, I'm excited about the great inception, Derek. One last question that we're going to we're going to let everybody know uh, how they can find the book. You have a very controversial symbol on the cover. Well, I'll be honest with you. This was something that was uh, a uh, part of the vision of the the cover designer, Jeffrey Martis. And uh, the point that you would see on the bottom, well, I guess it is, is kind of hidden behind the mountain there. But the whole point was just to find something that, that conveyed the image of uh, an occult system, which is part of this inception, this, this idea that uh, – and, and that just, by the way – the term was just taken from the science fiction film from a few years ago with Leonardo DiCaprio, the idea that you can implant an idea in someone else's mind that changes their reality and changes what they believe. It's just, again, a, a psychological operation. The occult system uh, or systems of the world, well, you, you could define any religious system that is not the worship of Jesus Christ, essentially, as occult. But we wanted something that conveyed that sense that uh, uh, of the occult there. But we did not look for a specific symbol to convey a specific message other than the enemy is trying to deceive us and has deceived many through these alternate religious systems throughout history. And it all has to do with the idea of the holy mountain, which is the, the reason for the mountain on the cover. The enemy, and when you read Isaiah 14, has said that he wants to establish his mount of assembly above that of God, above the throne of God. And people have bought into that lie through these these uh, occult systems, which uh, again come back go back to Babylon, which the Apostle John used as the symbol of the end times one world church. The point is, the history of the world, secular history, supports reinforces the narrative that's in the Bible. Scholars, uh, again on the secular side of the fence, have known about this stuff, but they view the Bible as a, a, a collection of fables and myths. Scholars on the the, the, the biblical side, I think, look at uh, all of this research by secular scholars with some suspicion. I think you can marry the two if you analyze it properly, analyze it through a biblical lens and see that um, it is a cohesive narrative. I'm excited for the book, Derek. I got to get my I got to get a signed copy. <laughs> the Great Inception, Satan's Psyops from Eden to Armageddon. Looks like an awesome book. We've had a great conversation tonight. I'm really excited to check it all out. Uh, currently you're taking pre-orders right now right. at skywatchtvstore.com. And, uh, right now they are doing pre-orders for a limited time cosmic war collection, super promo. And not only are you getting the great inception, but you're also getting a copy of reversing Hermone by Dr. Michael S. Heiser. Mm -hmm. That builds on his previous book, the unseen realm, which, um, shows that the mission of Jesus was not just to die on the cross, which of course was, you know, the, the main reason he came, he had to be the sacrifice for us to save us from our sins, but also to reverse the sin, the wickedness that the watchers brought to earth by bringing secret knowledge, forbidden knowledge to humanity that we weren't supposed to know. Um, if you asked, and this is per Mike, and uh, we've got a series of programs on Skywatch TV starting in mid-February that will delve into this. Uh, if you asked a Jew of the first century, in other words, one of the apostles, 
why the world was in such a sorry state, why there was so much wickedness and evil in the world, they would have a different answer than if you asked a 21st century Christian. You ask one of us, we'll say, well, it's because of the fall, what happened in the Garden of Eden. Yeah, a first century Christian, one of the apostles would say, well, yeah, but what happened in Mount Hermon was even more significant. And that was the mindset of Jews living during the Second Temple period, of which, oh, yeah, Jesus was one. So um, Mike's book shows how the, uh, the, the, the awareness of, of the book of Enoch and the incident that it records what happened in Mount Hermon is very is far more important to Christian theology than we've been taught. And both of these books are doing similar things. They are bringing the supernatural view back to Scripture. Absolutely. That's the hope anyway. And it's it's a great package. Uh, real quick, this is shipping uh, beginning on March 7th, so you're taking pre-orders right now. And uh, th- this is pretty mind-blowing. Not only are you getting the Great Inception, not only are you going to get Reversing Hermone, but you're also, with this order, you're getting a deluxe collector's hardback edition. Of the Book of Enoch. Okay, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> and you're getting the real Clash of the Titans DVD and the Unseen Adversary. All of this is included in the package. Um, I love what you guys do at Skywatch. I have no problem promoting what you guys sell because people don't understand that Skywatch TV is such a deeper ministry than what meets the eye. I mean, Skywatch is not only putting truth out there, they're not only encouraging believers, they're not only sharing the gospel. But Skywatch is behind an amazing ministry that helps rescue children and share the gospel with them with Whispering Ponies Ranch. So we are super excited to have you on talking about these things. We're always happy to promote what's going on at Skywatch. And Derek, thank you so, so much for coming on The Fourth Watch. I love talking with you. God bless you, brother. And uh, you guys take care, and we'll talk soon. All right. Thank you. Well, that was an interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. It's been a blessing to be back with you all this week for another episode. And I'm excited to be a part of what the Lord is doing in these last days. I'm praying for you all, and I sure appreciate each and every one of you who are praying for me as well as I work on the upcoming film. I just want to say in closing that the most amazing thing in this life is knowing our Creator, knowing His love for us as His children, and growing in the knowledge of His Word. All of these things are brought to you exclusively by the Lord Jesus Christ, and are only available through Him. If you're not a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, stay tuned, and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation. Until the next time we meet again, God bless and good night. If you're listening right now, and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted his holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of his word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, 
actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and his once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but he is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, he is willing to meet you right where you are. And he will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death. But tonight, we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice who shed his sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on him tonight. That's the most important part of the show and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, Every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the fourth watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the 